We are starting off the show talking about a story again about a major developer that is seeking creditor protection, over $700 million in debt. Talking about Coromandel Properties and what's happening there. Joining us to talk about why this is so concerning is Angela Calla, who is a mortgage expert, also the host of The Mortgage Show on this radio station and also with Dominion Lending Centres. Angela, thanks so much for making some time today. Oh, you're welcome, Jill. Uh, We're still learning more details about this. Uh, I'm looking at some of the details in a Vancouver Sun story. I know other media outlets are are reporting on this as well. Uh, But when you look at what we know so far about uh, this company, this very large development company uh, going, uh, getting creditor protection, what do you know about this or what is your reaction? Uh, First and foremost, when you are purchasing a pre-sale, the most important due diligence that you can do is very thorough review of the disclosure statement. The disclosure statement is something that the developer gives you to review, which lays out the terms of the contract and what the developer has right the rights to do, and the time clauses that are within that. And when you are purchasing a pre-sale, you purchase a pre-sale that has, generally speaking, not broken ground yet and will be done within a certain amount of years. That could be as little as, you know, four to six months, Jill, or it can be maybe five years in the future. So when you're personally planning on if you are going to make a pre-sale purchase, this is one of the considerations that you have to have is you have to understand very clearly what the terms and time clauses are because that gives the developer what deliverables have to be done within that period of time. And so in order now for the developer to change the disclosure statement. Um, this will have to be, you know, reviewed uh, by a judge to potentially break contracts. And in this province, British Columbians are very well protected. And the deposits that they've placed down on the presale will range based on the specifications that are within the terms of that disclosure statement. And they may have placed down 5% of the purchase price as an example or 10% of the purchase price, and that amount is held in trust. So all British Columbians are protected by that Trust Act, and for whatever reason, they could, if they selected to, uh, work to get a release from that if both parties agree and get their deposits back, or if the developer hasn't met the clauses within there, they can get their deposit back, or if this project simply is not going to proceed for the cost in which those borrowers locked their cost in for when they made that pre-sale purchase, they may get to a point, depending on if partners can come to the table and how the restructuring looks, that could go several different ways. But if it does get pushed into you know, receivership, as an example, and they determine that they have to sell these these homes at a higher price, then those purchasers would get their deposit back and potentially the choice if they wanted to, to buy at whatever the cost is. And then that is reviewed by the receivership process. And, you know, we had this back. uh, Riverbend is a Coquitlam project that went into receivership. This is not new to the province. We have seen this before. Um, And it is very sad to see this happening because we need these homes. And if these homes and projects get canceled, um, then that just leaves less places for people to rent or own in a time where we already have 1.5 million immigrants 
coming here within the next three years. And the number of that, too, that I was reading about this saying that the potential of these sites, they could have generated about 2,000 new homes, condominiums, rental, social housing units as well, all that have been proposed and planned in this development. Uh, there was also a line where the the company uh, made the point or uh, they, they said there was insufficient cash flow to complete some of the projects, but also put the blame on the city of Vancouver it, saying that the city of Vancouver has extremely expensive and slow mm-hmm. approval processes that are at least, mm-hmm. it says, partly at fault for the firm Absolutely. being in this precarious situation. Is that fair? Do you think that is a fair comment? Well, absolutely. If we're going to move a lot of housing through, we have to make it easier because look at what can happen in the economy. Our local government can't control what happens globally and inflation going through the roof. Interest rates have gone up over 4% in that time period. So, you know, development is many things, but easy is not one of it. When you are going to be hit from all these angles and all these costs, Um, Clearly, we've been talking about for decades how the process needs to be able to move faster for everybody to move ahead and give Canadians more certainty when they are buying these projects. It's a very difficult process, Jill. It's not easy. No, not at all. Uh, When you talk about those, some some people and and, and the people who will kind of get caught up in this, if they're getting their deposits back, and I know we've talked about this in the past, and uh, I remember uh, covering a a story in Langley where that happened. The building was almost finished and didn't go ahead. People got their deposits, but those were deposits from three years before and the market had taken off. So they were really stuck. So what is it like now with the way the market is now, do you think, with with people getting those deposits back and the difficulty with getting something else or finding another way to get into to buy a home? It is. This is the risk of buying a presale, and this is never easy. And Jill, I'm not sure if you're aware, but before a developer can even get the approval process to move forward, they already have to have a percentage of pre-sales sold. So it is so incredibly difficult when a developer is going through the process and trying to get things done and the economy completely changes. No one gets out of this unscathed. And I hope that the right partners will come to the table to be able to complete this project because if these people get their deposits back and they are entering the market, some areas have had some softenings, but they're going to have to re-strategize what they are going to do to be able to find real estate because we have insufficient supply. And so not only even if prices have come down, if we still don't have the supply, that doesn't help the issue of people getting to it. So let's hope, Jill, that the right partners come to the table and they can structure something where everybody can move ahead with confidence. Uh, Do you think there are concerns as well, or should there be concerns that this is one pretty major developer with a lot of projects that is now filing for creditor protection? Is there, could there be concerns that there are others that could be in a similar situation? Absolutely. This is without question. When you look at the depth of this, and there's nobody that, I don't know anybody that is immune to not being scathed with over a 4% interest rate hike and has a lot of responsibility to deliver a lot of product. Regardless of how your financial statements looked a few years ago, they're very different now because not only has your interest cost gone up, but all your supplies cost has gone up, all your staff cost has gone up. 
And the solution is multifaceted. The solution is not just financing. The solution is not just the approval process. It's also how are we going to bring in the workers to complete this and where are these people going to magically appear from and how do we house them? So um, this is a multifaceted approach, and my hope is that the right partners can come to the table that can work together on all these sectors. And Angela, just one other point, something you mentioned too, with people that if it gets to the point where people get their deposits back, and like you said, they're going to have to re-strategize, will they be impacted though by what they may have been approved for when they put a deposit on this home or this uh, condominium, this apartment, whatever it might have been they were purchasing and now having to renegotiate? Absolutely. And this is something again that we saw back in 2008. The people that were approved for that, the approvals generally came with a particular guarantee from a particular bank. And if that contract is canceled, absolutely, so was that approval. So they're also looking at, re, when we say re-strategizing, it's a complete re-strategizing of where are we today? We're not going to be where we thought we were going to be, which is a risk that we all take if we purchase a pre-sale. And so now we have to re-strategize and work on where can we buy, what can we buy, or where can we put that money that's going to benefit us while we build our plan to get us where we need to go as we have to readjust our route and on our plans. All right. Angela, thank you so much for being here, for joining us to talk more about this today. Always here for you, Jill. Thank you. Well, the Surrey Board of Trade has put out a new report and it's called BC Tax Review for a Competitive Economy. And it takes a look at what might be needed when it comes to reviewing taxes and having a bit of a tax reform. Joining us to talk more about this is Anita Huberman, the President and CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Take us through this, if you can, a little bit. This, as mentioned, lays out the groundwork for a provincial tax review. What specifically is this looking at? We're calling on the B.C. government, uh, and more specifically on B.C. Budget Day on February 28th, to make a commitment to businesses uh, to ensure that there is a comprehensive tax review. So that means reviewing all of the taxes that impact businesses, such as the employer's health tax, the PSD, the provincial sales tax, and any administration required by businesses to submit those taxes. And and really convening a private sector table of small, medium, large businesses with economists uh, to ensure that there is uh, that appropriate consultation uh, to really ensure that the bottom line of businesses uh, are really more sustainable in the face of rising costs. And you mentioned one, the employee health tax, and I know when that was implemented, there were a lot of questions about that with the elimination of MSP, even for businesses that maybe didn't cover a part of MSP or all of MSP for employees. Uh, taxes like that that are that are kind of brought in, what has the response been, or, or now that it's kind of been there for a while, how are business owners feeling about that? Terrible. So uh, in Surrey, we have uh, the greatest number of manufacturers within British Columbia, and some of them have uh, more than one business, and they have to pay the employer's health tax more than once. So each for each business, they have to submit paperwork for an employer's health tax. That is administratively burdensome, 
an additional cost um, that is adding to their bottom line. So the response uh, by our members in general is that taxation is eroding their bottom line, questioning their ability uh, and sustainability to be entrepreneurs. Are there some businesses you think or that you're hearing from that are, are hit harder than others? I get what you're saying, kind of the, the administration part of it. That could be uh, depending on the size of the business and, and across the board. But are you seeing others that, that feel that they're even more uh, kind of more penalized by this? Well, from a, a local government level, uh, for example, uh, even though our report specifically asked the B.C. government for this commitment, um, you know, it, it really is uh, the business community that bears the burden of taxation. But it's our industries, our manufacturers, our forestry companies uh, that own large parcels of land uh, that are facing increased costs. Um, but when it comes from a provincial context, and this needs to be done in coordination, uh, you know, with the federal government as well, and we called on them for a, a tax review like this, uh, it, you know, we really need to ensure that um, they recognize that all businesses are facing increased taxation. Uh, so, you know, from what we're hearing, um, it, it really is all businesses that are affected by increased taxes. And when we talk about doing a tax review then, and I, I see one of the bullet points under how to complete that would be to create a commission. How would you do that and actually get some concrete results? Because it does seem like whenever uh, we create a commission or a task force, uh, they can spend a lot of time looking at something, even make recommendations, but it doesn't always translate into more efficiencies. Well, we've seen in other jurisdictions, a few in Canada, um, and there's another example in Australia and New Zealand where immediately a commission was formed and uh, consultation engagement maybe was four to six months, depends on the jurisdiction. And, um, and you know, very slowly, uh, you know, it has to be a pathway, a journey, uh, different ingredients in the, the tax system. Uh, could uh, really ensure that we're focused on efficiencies, looking at taxes that don't make sense, maybe enhancing revenue uh, opportunities even for the B.C. government. It can be done very easily. And it's not just about creating another report. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we've spoken to Premier E.B., and uh, I know he's focused on action, and so we're hoping that he's going to make a commitment to the business community and support them in this. What are some of the things then that could be done right away that, that wouldn't take, uh, you know, a long time to kind of reform them or, or bring in a completely new policy? Are there certain things that, that you think could be done in the short term? That I don't have an answer to because our tax system is so complicated and um, the effects of how it impacts other investments also needs to be evaluated. Uh, so, you know, really we need to take a look, first of all, at the employer's health tax uh, and the provincial sales tax from our perspective on how we can modernize uh, that. Uh, you know, we have a carbon tax coming in as of April 1st. That's another added layer of cost to businesses and to residents. Uh, in general. And so, 
Uh, it does require fulsome thought um, and engagement with the private sector, but also those that are well-versed in uh, tax uh, systems. Yeah, and it's when you start listing it off like that, and and business owners know, I'm sure, all too well the the complexity of it. Uh, that's something as well that's been been talked about quite a bit. The the tax system, the tax code, which is huge, and why it needs to be so huge. I would imagine a lot of business owners would argue it doesn't need to be so big. When we've been on international trade missions, for example, to Dubai and India, they are indicating that Canada's tax code, uh, for example, is too complicated. Uh, that Canada, you know, is not really open for business because it's just too complicated uh, to co-locate a business. Uh, you know, they want to be able to invest in our country to create jobs for Canadians um, and for the newcomers that are to come. Uh, to really enhance productivity. But um, we really need to review our tax codes nationally and provincially. And uh, and also we need to, you know, have a renewed economic and jobs plan for Surrey uh, that uh, also looks at the taxes, at the property taxes that businesses are paying. And how how much of a burden is that? Because we do often talk about the the business tax that what business owners are paying, comparing it to homeowners to property taxes. How much would you like to see kind of things change? Uh, not, I suppose, even playing field or, or a more even playing field there. Certainly, a more even playing field. Um, but uh, you know, residents are also facing significant economic challenges. Uh, you know, the tax. Uh, system review is also meant as an opportunity uh, to enhance revenue for the BC government, uh, to save residents and businesses money uh, so that there is a more balanced approach. It can be done. Uh, we just need, um, you know, great minds uh, at the table, not the typical minds. Uh, we need to hear from, you know, the real business people that are on the ground uh, in conjunction with those that are well-versed in our tax system. Uh, you mentioned as well the budget that we are going to see. It will be delivered at the end of the month. Is there a hope or what are you hoping for as far as addressing businesses and with what the government priorities are going to be when they bring out the budget? Well, we've asked for a tax review previously. There's been no commitment by the B.C. government, but in the face of uh, rising and escalating costs to businesses, uh, we're hoping that they will change their mind. And, and through this report that we released today, uh, that was our intention. But, um, you know, we're hearing there's going to be commitments in this upcoming B.C. budget around more uh, industry needs tied to uh, curriculum development to really enhance reskilling and upskilling uh, because businesses are facing challenges to find labor. Uh, we're hearing about infrastructure investments to move people, move goods. Uh, so we're looking forward to hearing the detail on that front. Uh, so uh, certainly um, the tax review, if there is a commitment that messaging on February 28th, it will go a long way to say, you know, we're committed. The D.C. government is committed to businesses in British Columbia. All right. So, well, we will wait and see what is in the budget and what kind of an appetite there is for a tax review. Anita Huberman, as always, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you.
We will bring you the final words. Well, not the final words. I shouldn't say that. The announcement today from John Horgan in Victoria. We will bring you that announcement shortly coming up this half hour. Right now, though, we are taking a look at the B.C. labour market. It was released and shows that about 80% of the 1 million job openings expected in the next 10 years will require some type of post-secondary training or education. And the job openings will see about 63% to replace workers who are leaving the labour force, talking about people who are retiring and other job expansions through economic growth. That number is a bit lower at about 37%. What types of jobs? Well, we're talking healthcare, social assistance, professional, retail trade, construction, educational services. So what does that look like as far as having the capacity in post-secondary organisations? Jennifer Figner joins us now, the interim vice president at BCIT in the academic section. Jennifer, thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure, Jill. Thanks for having me this afternoon. Well, that was one of the big questions that I was hearing when we talked about this or saw these numbers yesterday, that there are going to be so many jobs that will require some type of post-secondary training. Do we have the capacity to meet that demand? Yeah, it's such a, an interesting and challenging time for for British Columbia for the workforce, but obviously for those of us in post-secondary in terms of how we address the challenges that are ahead. So, uh, you know, in quick answer to your question, do we have the capacity? Absolutely. But does it mean that we need to look at post-secondary in, in a fairly different way than we traditionally have for a lot of years? Yeah, it means that as well. And what do you mean by that, looking at it in kind of a different way? Well, you know, if you look at it, and in reviewing the, the Outlook report that came out yesterday, you know, it indicates that it's anticipated about half of, of that market need that you referred to is likely to be met by those entering the labor force for the first time. Um, and those those people may be able to uh, look to post-secondary for what we would say traditionally. You know, you come in right after you K-12, to you pursue a diploma or a degree or a, a skilled trade certification. Um, and then you go into the workforce and maybe never look back at post-secondary. But, but the other half of this market need is going to be met by uh, people who are returning to the workforce, potentially new Canadians, people who are transitioning either into new careers or because the industry that they're in has changed significantly over the, the recent period of time. And, you know, even with those new learners, but certainly more so with the other ones, the, their need for flexibility and for just in time, skilling and training is going to be paramount. And that's very different than the traditional go in for four years and never come back approach. Right. Okay. And and what about the, the number of seats, though, and the, and the fact that if we do have more people that are seeing this opportunity, seeing that there are going to be all of these new jobs and they do require this training, if it's a, a year program, if it's an apprenticeship or something like that, what about making sure there is space? Well, and I think that that's a really good question, but really the way we're looking at it is it's not uh, making space in those seats in the one-year program or so forth, which we've, we've got uh, really exciting opportunities in what we're calling flexible learning, which, which touches on what I was just speaking to. Um, but in addition to full-time programs that might be one year or so forth, offering uh, whether it's an individual course or the ability to pursue full programs in a part-time flexible manner, which is over and above full-time programming for us. And what's, what's really growing um, 
is is what we're terming in the post-secondary arena as micro-credentials, um, which is really looking at maybe it's not even a full course in the traditional sense of the word, but what are the specific skills or competencies that uh, people might need to to change in their in their job or to meet labor force demands, and how can we offer those? It often, you know, it's in a weekend format, it's in a couple of workshops, way more online learning. We learned so much through the pandemic, whether we wanted to or not, about how to deliver, you know, education and applied education in that manner, and so that really opens up the capacity. So do you think that's something then that will stay as far as maybe not all online, but certainly having that hybrid model or the option for people that for whatever reason that just works better for them? Absolutely, it will. And, uh, you know, we were pressed to learn how to teach things that we thought never could be taught online, particularly, you know, at BCIT, where so much of what we do is considered to be hands on and applied and figured out how to, to do a lot of it, maybe not 100%, but a lot more models where people will be able to do a large chunk of their learning in an online format and then maybe come in onto a campus to do the hands on training piece. It's really just opening up the flexibility and how we approach what might, might have been a traditional way of learning. And does that change too what we're, what we kind of think of when you think of post secondary? Because for and I, I suppose it depends where you are in your life and whether or not you're you're returning as a so called mature student or you're coming in there. But it is for a lot of people, it's more than just not well not just, but it's it's more than the learning and the learning skills and preparing for a, a job. It's also the you're going to meet potentially lifelong friends and you're going to have that camaraderie and you're going to have that experience of growing with people and being there, which you're not going to get if you're doing it online? You know, I'm going to say yes and no to that. And I think, uh, again, maybe because we were forced to, I think there are ways that we can, that you can build camaraderie and and cohorts and, and meeting people in online formats. But that's also where I think the best of both worlds is what we would term a hybrid or a flexible way of, of learning, which includes a little bit of both. But, you know, also you touched on on the fact that it, particularly a number of these people who might be approaching post-secondary are doing so at a different stage of life. Um, and ideally, I think probably throughout their careers to, to keep coming back for learning and training. And for those learners, perhaps the social aspect of it isn't as important as gaining uh, the skills and the training that are required for what's their next stage in their career in the most flexible or efficient way that works for them. And what works for one person could be very different than what works for another. Right. And and do you see, too, perhaps a change or more of a shift to if it is somebody who's coming back for more training or wanting to expand and maybe go into a slightly different area or maybe a completely different, are we seeing more employee or sorry, employer involvement in that mm-hmm. post-secondary can be very expensive. That can be limiting for a lot of people. But are we going to see or do you think we'll see more employers investing in their workers to, to help them get those those expanded skills? Absolutely. You know, again, we have to look at this from both sides of addressing uh, the, the labor outlook. One is from the individuals who are looking for the jobs, but the other is obviously from, from the employers who uh, are currently looking to hire them or are currently looking to retain their workforce. And we hear all the time, uh, again, you know, BCIT, our, our mandate has always been to partner with industry in readying a workforce. And so we've always worked closely with industry, but now even more so to be able to uh, address what employers tell us is needed, either because something's changed in their specific industry, a new technology or something along those lines, 
or because they want to offer opportunities for their existing workforce to upskill and perhaps uh, advance within the company. There's uh, a lot of demand from employers to do that. And, and where we can do that successfully, that is uh, the absolute best experience for learners because it is, in fact, extremely relevant to what's happening in that industry or in that organization right at that particular time. And how much do you think it's also going to depend on uh, foreign students and immigration and people coming? And again, pr- maybe with some skills, maybe upgrading skills mm-hmm. as well and, and getting people so we do have people that can fill these jobs. I, well, that's going to be critical. And that, that is reflected somewhat in the, in the report as well that, that came out yesterday. Um, that's going to be key to meeting. I think they're looking at about 40% of this need is likely to be from new Canadians or, or international students as well. And, you know, there's an interesting opportunity there. Uh, and I, you know, this is a larger than, than one post-secondary or even British Columbia can address. There's nationally, we need to look at, at foreign credentialing of, of people who have skill sets in other countries. But one of the things that when we talk about flexibility in, in the way we deliver learning is also to provide what we call prior learning assessment and recognition, uh, which is to take what people are already able to do, might be from a a post-secondary either here or um, elsewhere, or it might be in a very non-traditional way of learning, but translate it into academic credit to be able to to allow people to complete credentials much more quickly and then get right back into the workforce. And do you see that becoming more of a focus or at least trying to maybe open the doors more or make it a bit easier for people to do that? Yeah, I, we, I mean, we have to do that. It's the right thing to do anyway, but the, the fact that we're able to, um, we have, you know, far better ways to measure what skills and competencies people come in with and then uh, and translate that into, okay, what, what little bit more or potentially slightly larger bit more do they need in order to skill for the career that they're looking for and provide them, you know, only what's needed and in a timely and flexible fashion so that they can get back to working or get to working here in Canada in the case of a foreign worker um, as quickly as possible. And when we look at the breakdown as well, and this is kind of breaking down what kind of education it's anticipated is going to be needed for the job openings that we're going to see in the future. It's, I think, 37% at a bachelor's graduate or first professional degree, 29% a diploma or a certificate that excludes an apprenticeship. 19% high school and or occupation specific training. Do those numbers seem to make sense as far as where we're going to see the most need or the most where we're going to see that educational need? They make sense. And and particularly if you if you take everything other than the the bachelor's or first professional degree, which is obviously a big chunk at at 37 percent, as you mentioned, And, and that's likely to be where people are doing their first educational credential. But if you take the rest of it, which ends up being a fairly large chunk, that's the part that happens ongoing through people's careers. And I think, although they've always existed, they're forming a much larger portion of what's considered to be post-secondary education than what they have in the past. Certainly not to take away from the value of a degree. Um, There's a very real need for that, but that tends to be the entry level. And then what becomes throughout people's career is the rest of those numbers. Right. And looking at the, at the other, the specific types of jobs, very high up on the list, the healthcare and social assistance, mm-hmm. 15%, and then also 15% of the total professional, scientific and technical, which seems pretty broad. But that's, that's a lot when you think that that's 30% of all of these new jobs. 
It, it is. And as you say, there are broad categories. And, and even within those, there's obviously some specific areas where the need is higher than others. I think when people think about healthcare, they often immediately think about doctors and nurses. And, and obviously, those are a large proportion of, of the healthcare needs. But there are so many other pieces to healthcare that, that includes not only other health care services like, you know, uh, uh, sonography, um, radiology, all of those sorts of things, and, and specialized um, care within the system, specialty nursing and those, uh, but also other jobs in healthcare that are not specifically healthcare related. I think people sometimes lose track of the fact that healthcare jobs might mean some of the administrative support in the healthcare industry. Right. Well, and and certainly uh, looking at that and the wide range, and uh, there will certainly be that need for post-secondary education in some form. Uh, and again, so Jennifer, do you think we're on the right track as far as meeting these needs? I think I think we're on the right track. I think we have a ways to go. Um, we are addressing this really, really quickly, uh, and and feel fortunate at BCIT to be so partnered with industry that we can. Do that. It's going to require post-secondary to really, as I said at the beginning of this discussion, really challenge what we consider to be the, the traditional model of post-secondary education and find a way to meet individuals where their needs are in upskilling and reskilling. And to, to your point earlier, to, um, to be working with industry and employers to find out what their needs are. All right. Uh, interesting numbers uh, looking ahead at uh, what the job openings are going to be like in this province. Jennifer, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much for your time today. It's my pleasure. Have a good afternoon. Well, if you thought in the last couple of days you were going to head on over to the Indigo or Chapters website and check out some reading material, you would have been instead looking at a giant blue screen that says we've experienced a cybersecurity incident and are working with third-party experts to investigate and resolve the situation. We sincerely apologize for any inconvenience this may create for our valuable customers. It also goes on to say that customers can go into the stores at this point. However, you can only do cash transactions, saying we are temporarily unable to process electronic payments to accept gift cards or returns and appreciating the customer's uh, patients as they deal with this. So a cyber security incident, and certainly that's not the first uh, first company that we have seen go through this. Is it happening more? And if so, why? Well, joining us to talk more about this is Robert Falzon, head of engineering at Checkpoint Canada. Robert, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, before we get into this and what we're seeing when it comes to cybersecurity attacks, what exactly does Checkpoint Canada do? So Checkpoint basically creates the technologies that keep people safe on the Internet. So that's essentially our, our primary role. All right. So when you see a big company like Chapters Indigo going through this, and it's been since at least yesterday, I think yesterday morning, that they were taken out, their online presence taken out by a cyber attack. What goes through your mind? Well, it's unfortunate. It really, really is. But uh, I'm struck by the fact that we are seeing more and more of this. It happens almost on a daily basis. Uh, we are seeing a dramatic increase in Canada, specifically Canadian companies. have seen about you know, 20% uh, increase in attacks this year alone. 
So I think we're going to be, it's sad, but I think we're going to be buckle up because it's going to see a lot of these in the next, uh, next year here for sure. And when we see a company like this, that the website is down, uh, stores are open, but no electronic payments, no gift cards or returns. What does that tell you about what's happened or what kind of attack we're dealing with here? So they haven't released a lot of information for us to, to, to kind of dig through and see. There could be a number of different situations. It could be ransomware, which is probably the most uh, it's the most effective attack that we've seen hitting organizations in Canada of late. And that's, of course, where they encrypt all of your systems and then they demand a ransom payment in order to release it and allow you to use your systems again. Uh, that's probably the, the most crippling. But it could even be something so much as uh, some, you know, somebody deleting uh, online databases or removing or destroying the systems that are actually running their backend uh, services. So there's, there's all sorts of things that can happen. I'm struck by the fact that, you know, today, uh, I don't think people realize how vulnerable many of these organizations are, uh, especially coming out of COVID, when, you know, a lot of companies were relying on people working from home, making sure that they were, uh, you know, trying to be as safe as they could working from their houses. But now that everybody's back in the office, everything has changed again. Right. So we keep shifting the, the perimeter for everybody. And I think that's what's creating a challenge for these companies. And when customers see this uh, more to I mean, it's an inconvenience if you were hoping to purchase a book online or something online or you needed to return mm-hmm. something. But it's also concerning. And I'll fully admit I, I shop there. I have a points card. I have a loyalty card with them. Sure. And my first thought was, OK, well, should I be concerned about my information that's stored that they have on me? What do you say to people that have concerns about this or curious what does it mean for your information you absolutely should be concerned and and there is a level of responsibility uh, at the consumer level we all have to make sure we're practicing basic cyber hygiene as i call it make sure that your the passwords that you're using for things say for example your rewards program uh, that you're using at that particular company make sure that you don't have the same credentials to log into there as maybe you do three or four other uh, services that you might use online because once one is breached if that data is leaked out now hackers will actually try to log into several other services using the same usernames and passwords because often you know people are people we tend to use the same ones and next thing you know you're compromising other services as well that you might use as a consumer uh, it's a, a good thing to even, I suppose, a reminder to go and check because it is easy, I think. And I think we're all guilty of using the same password more than once, even mm-hmm. if it's not for everything, maybe a few places and, and, and not all. But you're right. It's a, a good reminder to go and check it and to make sure, I guess, we're protecting ourselves as much as we can. Absolutely. And use multi-factor as well. Many companies are, are, are rightfully adding the ability to use a second method of authentication to make sure that, you know, should somebody, uh, you know, take your credentials and try to use them without your permission, you'll likely get a text message or something or an email saying someone's trying to do so. And you can, you know, stop that attack from happening right then and there. So there are a number of things that consumers can do, but we do need to see these, this improved security happening at the service level. And I think companies across Canada really need to take a close look at how they are managing this and how they intend to deal with it in the future. Is it something or could it be something as, as simple as, and I know more and more companies are doing cyber training and making sure employees are up to date on what to look for and what to be suspicious of when you're uh, something even as, as simple as an email coming in. I mean, could a, could a cyber attack like this have been because an employee clicked on something that they shouldn't have? About 97% of all attacks in Canada today occur by exactly that means. 
That's exactly how they happen. And to be fair, uh, in the, you know, I say the old days, literally a few years ago, uh, you would be able to tell a, a, an email coming. Usually you could tell because it had poor grammar or bad spelling, things like that. Hackers have gotten a lot better at spelling and grammar. But secondly, tools like ChatGPT have come along and they've allowed people who might not even be uh, native speakers of the language to create absolutely perfect emails that would fool just about anyone. So the sophistication has increased dramatically and the number of people who have the ability now to create an attack like that has also dramatically increased. Can you explain a little bit more about ChatGPT? I keep seeing it and people are certainly talking about it more, more so recently, it seems. So what exactly is that? So ChatGPT is a is a essentially a um, uh, it was an educational system. It is a large language model. It's a form of artificial intelligence or machine learning. And essentially, what it does is it's collecting massive, massive, massive amounts of information from all across the internet and using it to to basically respond to queries from a user in natural language. So I can ask it. I can say, Hey, ChatGPT, please create me a script that creates a piece of malware that will lock a person's computer and send me the password. And so literally somebody who has no programming knowledge can go ahead and, and do something like that and end up with a workable script that they can then go ahead and launch against someone. So ChatGPT has that. It has the ability as well to also do things like help you write a resume or perhaps write a, um, you could type and say, show me what a dating profile might look like. And oh, by the way, could you also create a picture of a, of a fake person for me and, uh, you know, and I'll use that. And then next thing you know, you've got a Tinder profile from a person that doesn't exist. Hmm. Right. So it's quite an advanced piece of a uh, piece of technology. And so in a scenario like that, how how does somebody kind of stay ahead of that or, or get to a point where they can d- distinguish between something like that and a real and authentic profile? Right. So the, the time has long since passed where we can just use human intuition to decide whether an attack is, is an attack or not. You do have to start using software tools. You have to make sure you have advanced technology on your laptops. We have to protect our mobile devices. All right? Remember, we keep our entire lives on our mobile devices, including payment information, pictures of our family, things about work, all sorts of things like that. You cannot put that at risk. You have to start using software. We have a, a package called uh, Zone Alarm, right? So use a number of them out on the marketplace. Just make sure that you have some sort of protection on your devices, especially ones that might have artificial intelligence as well inside that software package because you kind of have to fight fire with fire, right? If the hackers are using uh, AI and ML, we have to be using it as well. And with the increase as well in cyber attacks, do you think we're a little bit too uh, laid back about it in that do we tend to think that it is the big companies, it's the chapters, it's Twitter, it's these companies that would be the focus <laughs> and the targets. But like you said, we, we have to be thinking about our own security, our own cell phones as well. Sure. It's, the fact is that medical records are worth more on the uh, on the dark uh, dark net than credit cards are, right? Mm-hmm. That tells you something. The, the fact is, we're trying to find more information about people and then leverage that for a bigger a bigger attack, if you will. Companies, sure, large companies are always going to be at risk, but individuals have a lot more at stake than they might realize. Right. If you have an ill relative or something who's, you know, who's vulnerable and next thing you know, somebody's emailing them about something that has to do with their medical situation, they're going to be far more likely to engage with that um, malicious actor than if they didn't know anything about them. Right. So we all have something to, to lose here and we have to be very careful about 
our cyber hygiene. I think children have to be made aware. You should talk to your kids about better cyber hygiene, about how password hygiene works. Make sure you're changing your password, using complex passwords and things like that. Don't talk to strangers, right? But for the but for the 21st century, <laughs> right? So yeah, there's a lot we can do, and, we, and the individual does honestly have a lot of risk as well. What do you do though if it's happened, and you're obviously going to learn better for next time? But if you are the victim of a cyber attack, or somebody's gotten into your system or your phone or what have you, what do you do at that point? So there's a number of things you can do. First of all, if it's a, from a financial perspective, you need to reach out to your your banking institution immediately, and you need to make them aware that this has happened. Make sure that you feel that you've been breached. Uh, if your credentials were stolen, you need to change them immediately. If you know that you've used that same password. Uh, several times or maybe on more than one site, you need to go and change that immediately. The second thing you can do, if you need to, is you can change your credit card number. You can call the bank and say, look, I, you know, I think this credit card was, uh, was stolen via a hack that happened last week. You can have them send you a new credit card number. And finally, I would make sure that you frequently check your credit report. And that's, you know, there's a lot of free services that enable you to do that. And check them to make sure that there's nothing registered against your name. Uh, it can be quite shocking to find... Uh, I think there was something in the news a short time ago where somebody sold a house that didn't belong to them. So, you know, you have to check your credit history as well and make sure that there isn't any unusual activity on there, too. All right. Good things to keep in mind uh, as we're seeing more and more of these cyber attacks. Thank you so much, Robert. Great to chat with you and talk about this today. Thank you. You as well. Thank you, Jill. Take care.